This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nithin Seem, Editor-in-Chief of ATS Scholar, and I'm really excited for a special scholarly podcast today. Scholarly is sponsored by the ATS section of medical education, as well as ATS Scholar. And we're going to talk about the best of ATS Scholar in the year 2020. I'm honored to be joined by ATS Scholar Senior Deputy Editor Trish Critic and Deputy Editor Christy Burkhart for today's discussion. Christy, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to, Nathan. So I'm Christy Burkhart. I am at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. Uh, my day job, so to speak, I am the Pulmonary and Critical Care uh, Fellowship Program Director. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about my fellows' education and curriculum, as well as faculty development and physician well-being. And I'm excited to be here with you and Trish today. Well, thank you. And then Trish, please tell our listeners what you do at the University of Washington. Well, I'm also a Pulmonary and Critical Care Doctor, though really I'm only a critical care doctor now. And I'm the associate dean for faculty affairs, which means I spend a lot of time thinking about how we help faculty thrive. And that includes a lot of clinician educators. Um, and I work on ATS Scholar with you, Nathan. And it has been one of the fun things of this year, which has been a really challenging year, is working on ATS Scholar. And I thought that as we reflect on this experience of the last year. One of the things that was particularly crazy is that we set out to launch this new journal and there was immediately a pandemic. And so I'm curious from your perspective, how did launching a journal synchronously with the onset of a global pandemic, how did it affect kind of what we did as we started this journal from your perspective? Yeah, well, thanks for that, Trish. But first I would say you're saying that you're only a critical care doctor is like a Michael Jordan saying he's only a basketball player, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> I like all analogies to my being anything like Michael Jordan. Yeah, there you go. So, go so, uh, so, but yeah, you know, uh, it, it was, uh, it wasn't good uh, to have a, a launch of an education journal uh, coincide with the, with the hopefully a once in a century pandemic. But, um, you know, I think when we step back and say, what was our goal with scholar? It's been when we started this out, pre-pandemic, right? It's been to publish content relevant to our large community of pulmonary critical care and sleep clinician educators. And as you know well, Trish, pre-pandemic, we had many conversations when we were getting the journal off the ground as to how do we go best go about publishing high quality health professions, education manuscripts and videos and use the online format of the journal to be innovative in our delivery. Uh, when COVID hit us in early 2021, uh, we had to step back and say, look, our community, uh, the community we serve is leading this fight clinically. Um, education research is most likely going to take uh, a backseat to caring for patients as systems were getting overwhelmed. And so we've got to figure out a way to publish content that will be of value in real time. Um, and so I think what we talked through in many conversations, and I think that we really did serve the community, is we, we pivoted to uh, focusing on some clinical education pieces that help providers who were covering ICUs, some for the first time and some for the first time in many years. And I think the three of us have talked about talking to colleagues from across the country and asking for sort of support as they were 
you know, tasked to cover an ICU. Um, and I'm really proud of some of that content. Uh, I think the one group were the, the collections of one page just in time learning guides that's centered around common problems that occur in the ICU. And I think that's a great example of this sort of COVID content that we, we were able to provide. Just as an example, one collection we published by Joshua Lee and colleagues um, reviewed the basics of respiratory failure. And it was a series of one page guides to walk through common questions one might ask when you're dealing with respiratory failure. Like, what do I do when my non-intubated patient is hypoxemic? Or what do I do when my patient just got intubated? And these sort of practical tips walking through um, a, a, an outline and a flow chart, they could be printed out or read on one's phone during real-time care. And then, you know, we've been very careful to sort of, to figure out our audience and what, what resonates with them. And based on the web data, as well as anecdotal feedback we've received, these sort of practical, concise guides that could be used as clinical bedside support really did resonate with our community. So, so I was quite proud of uh, uh, us for being able to do that and really appreciative of authors being able to provide that content. I also love that we did it fast. Like yeah. it was something that people needed like right then, actually needed it like last Thursday. And um, for a group that was just kind of finding our footing and trying to figure out who we were and what we were going to do, I think that the part where we kind of came together and said, let's let's respond to this and get stuff out for people to use because they need it right now, I thought was um, particularly inspiring to me as part of kind of the early work that we did. I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, you look at it, it's, it's daunting because, you know, it's reaching out to groups, working through a peer review process, getting it online um, in a format that's readable, you know, all of that, it, you know, in typically takes some time and, and getting it out where it was a value um, to bedside providers in a, in a, in rapid fashion was really a, a that's a great point. It was, it was so important and, and really effective. So, so Christy, I wanted to ask you about uh, COVID experiences, obviously, you know, being in New York uh, when the surge was occurring in New York in the spring of 2020, um, I think we, we published view from the learner commentaries from, a medical student who graduated early um, at NYU to care for COVID patients and from a fellow who was from Sinai who cared for, for patients and, and worked with staff from other subspecialties in caring for patients during at the height of the surge. And obviously going through it yourself, I'm sure they, they resonated with you since you were experiencing many of these same, same things at, at Columbia. So I was wondering if, if you wouldn't mind talking um, about your feelings as you, as you read through these uh, pieces. Sure, I'd be happy to. I, I have to say, um, for me, these two papers um, in the View for the Learners are some of the most powerful papers I think we published during COVID. Um, and I think they serve as almost a historical record of something that um, I hope we never see, not even a hundred year pandemic, but ever see again. Um, I think uh, when you go through, so the, the first article is the graduating early in the time of COVID-19, which was written by Julia Probert, um, a medical student at NYU who chose to graduate early. And as you read through her paper, you can feel several emotions that thematically pull up several times throughout the paper. Um, she starts off really by saying that um, she receives an email from the dean and they make sure it's voluntary, um, but that she's been offered the opportunity to graduate early um, and to join the forces in caring for patients with COVID. 
And as we all think back upon our sort of fourth year of medical school, like imagine being forced with that decision, with that choice, right? The fear early on in the pandemic, a lot of our healthcare providers and physicians and colleagues were getting sick. There was risk to self as well as sort of um, the loss of ability to sort of see family members. And to read through Julia's paper, her perspective, that medical student sort of takes that pause and says upfront um, that she felt ang anxious and sort of just so nervous about this decision. But in the end, she knew it was the right decision to step up and become part of the forces caring for patients. Um, and sort of recognizes up front within that sort of first paragraph, closes it with courage is not a personality trait, but a decision. And I think she frames this this paper as she goes through it. And I, I've read it several times. And every time I read it, um, it brings a lot of mixed emotions for me. Um, I think that as you go through it, you can feel her anxiety and angst combined with courage and strength that she sort of developed through her colleagues and her peers, her anxiety. Am I going to help or be more of a hindrance? Am I a student now who can't really sort of do the job and, and help keep people better? Um, she talks about very briefly, um, but really powerfully about the disparities that really became evident during COVID and especially at Bellevue Hospital, which is a safety net hospital in New York City, where she recognized that, you know, the most vulnerable citizens in the city are sort of being disproportionately made sick and that she, you know, sort of said that grit and humanism really worked to fight against that. Um, and the loss, and there's the loss that she feels for not having that sort of second half of your end of your medical school career, where it's sort of that happy-go-lucky, where you're not sort of super stressed and that you're getting ready to end your medical school training and move on to your next state of um, your career, loss of time with her family. I particularly liked her comments about um, her graduation ceremony, which was 52 people on a poorly designed WebEx call that basically talked about the Hippocratic Oath and that it was certainly not the most perfect or elegant graduation, but that it was right for the time. And there was not a sense of loss, but a sense of pride. Um, and I think as you move through this paper, she sort of talks about um, the, the friendship, the camaraderie, the mentorship from residents throughout, and that she really wanted to sort of be at their side with them. Um, and she ends with, as I follow in the footstep of the house staff, once my superiors, now at my side, I choose to be with my team. I choose to be courageous and I choose to care no matter what. And I think it's a really powerful paper to watch the journey of a medical student ending medical school early to step in and fight the fight against COVID and to be part of a team and recognize that we are all greater as a we than a me um, and really sort of be part of that process. And I thought that was a particularly powerful um, commentary from a learner, from a medical student, basically graduating early. Yeah, you know, I, and I think the thing that was really interesting about that is that, you know, New York was the first to really get hit so hard with that surge, uh, overwhelming a system. And then you would see across the country, other places have that. And I think, you know, as anyone could sort of read through that and, 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 and go think to put themselves in, in her shoes and sort of walk through the, through those experiences. I think it was really important to put that out there early um, and sort of, you know, again, I, I, I talk, we talk a lot about community, you know, you were serving that community, you were sharing that experience, which, you know, sadly, many others have had to face similar experience later. Agreed, 100%. And I think the the other paper that really sort of resonates what other communities across the country had to deal with was the second commentary by the fellow, six feet apart yet closer than ever. 
And that perspective is of a learner, but a, a, a later stage in your training, a learner who is a third year pulmonary and critical care fellow. Um, so Jing Wang, who's out of Mount Sinai, and her, her paper really walks through that perspective of, I know what it's like to practice critical care medicine in a controlled environment. And I'm now seeing an environment spiral out of control that I'm normally in control of. And you walk through her emotions a little bit where she starts off by saying, I am prepared, I am ready. I am volunteering to go serve in this community hospital that is overwhelmed. And she sort of ends that first paragraph talking about how she cried her way home in Uber. And she goes through that sort of evolution that all of us in critical care medicine, I think, have felt at various stages um, of the COVID pandemic where um, she has eight patients intubated before three o'clock in the afternoon and there aren't any ICU beds and they're managing them on the floors and, and that sort of distress about not providing optimal care, really providing crisis standards of care at a time um, into that sort of, sort of not acceptance, but recognition that again, there's a team of people out there and watching that community build around her, finding ways to connect, moving out of that isolation and despair into we connect with our colleagues um, via chatting or texting or keeping that network. It's really important. And again, ends with that evolution into that sort of larger community where she talks about the neurosurgeons who are on the team really being part of that critical care team, that sort of multidisciplinary, non-traditional team taking care of patients, people coming in from outside of New York City, really coming in and watching that community really build and grow. Um, and I think, you know, reading both of these papers, you can feel what that felt like going through the COVID pandemic um, to a place of sort of recognizing the community as whole is still here and that we are in this together and that we will get through this. And so for me, these were very powerful papers and um, they truly represented I, uh, certainly how I sort of experienced the first surge of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, and I think the, the other part of that is what was nice is having one from student who has a different experience, but as you were saying, the fellow paper, a senior fellow who's gone through managing patients in busy ICUs and seeing how just massively abnormal this was compared to a normal critical care experience. Again, I think it really did resonate with a lot of people and unfortunately, um, you know, was something that people were gonna be seeing in the months ahead. I think the thing that was interesting was those papers resonated and those stories were powerful in the way that Christy just described. And it made us develop a new category for the journal, view from the, from the learner. <laughs> like we didn't actually have that plan, but those papers were so meaningful and powerful that we said, we wanna publish these. And then because we're a brand new journal, we said, and maybe this is something we should keep doing, maybe not just about COVID, but about perspectives from learners as we move forward, if we're focusing on education. So I thought it was powerful about their stories, but I thought it was also interesting in terms of creating a journal, how those stories helped us think about what we might do as a, as an editorial team. I think you've, you did, you've taken uh, the listeners uh, uh, behind the scenes there. Uh, see, I see Trish, the strategy was supposed to be that everything was very well planned out and then nothing <laughs> was serendipity, right? We, we, we knew that well ahead of time, but no, no, that's, that's exactly right. And that's fascinating. And I think that's what I think we, we've always talked about doing as a new journal. We sort of, uh, you know, we, we go uh, where, where it makes sense. And I think it became very clear to us. I think that's an excellent point. To, and you, uh, you jogged my memory about that. So thank you. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of our work during COVID is that we pivoted and adapted, um, I think, remarkably um, well to find opportunities like that to um, help our readers really connect with the information. 
I mean, that really is what COVID, the COVID content section is about. And Trish, as a critical care doctor in Seattle, I mean, you were the first place to really sort of hit that sort of COVID pandemic. I'm sure there's several articles in our COVID collection that sort of resonate with you. Are, are there any that um, particularly stand out? Um, actually, it's the videos that stand out to me the most. And I think there's a series of videos that we that were created that were entitled ventilators for non-intensivists. It kind of plays to what Nathan was talking about before of us rapidly creating resources for people who had to play the role of an intensivist when they didn't necessarily normally do that. And um, I think Nathan really partnered with folks from um, Pittsburgh, um, Megan Acho, Allison Lee, and Bert Lee to say, hey, you teach this a lot. How about creating these videos? And what I love about the videos is number one, they're short. Number two, they're really focused on the kind of stuff you need to do if you suddenly get thrust into an ICU and have to interact with a ventilator. And and we as intensivists sometimes like to get super esoteric. I know that at least one of that team of video makers is really a true expert. Maybe all three of them are true experts on the ventilator. And it could have gotten super nuanced and um, nerdy. <laughs> for lack of a better word, but but they didn't. They, they were super practical and I think really useful for that person who's like, oh my gosh, I usually work in the OR doing orthopedic surgery. Now I'm gonna take care of a patient on a ventilator. And I know I learned this once, but I just need to know how to deal with it in the short term. And I love the videos for that. Um, the other thing I loved about the videos was, and I'll, I'll do a little bit behind the scenes again here. They were really good when they first came to us and they weren't, exactly as focused as maybe we wanted them to be. And that team was outstanding in partnering with us on editing them. Because at first I thought we were just gonna have to take whatever we get. And, and I think that that wasn't what we did. We really worked with them to make them even better. And now I think we have a really nice collection, which unfortunately Nathan just tweeted out again because we're in a place again in this country, in this pandemic where I think there are folks who need these videos again right now. So. It's an unfortunate need, but it's a real need. And I think these videos for me were one of those really inspiring things that where we could be helpful to the community of clinicians who are taking care of patients that they didn't normally take care of. So I, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed the videos and I enjoyed the process in, in getting there. All three of us like to teach about ventilators. So all three of us were, <laughs> were pouring over them and, and providing feedback and kudos to that team for like not saying stop, but saying, yeah, let's make these as good as we can possibly do before we launch it. I think you, you raised some great points there. And I think, you know, you've heard me rant uh, many times about the frustration with people posting their own non-peer reviewed content on YouTube channels or social media, right? And I think that that, that entire process, having expertise, but also being able to translate it into plain language that again, as, as we're talking about, I think, you know, when we go back in history, it'll be weird to say all these people who hadn't, you know, taken care of a patient on a ventilator since their residency are then all of a sudden tasked with doing that. Um, and how do we sort of provide resources for them? And, and that, that group did a, did a great job with them. But I think that that peer review process really did um, help that these are trusted resources that you can rely on um, to, to help you through this. Yeah, I thought I thought that was a special part of the whole process. And while I feel like there is forever an imprint on this journal of COVID because 
we kind of came into being around the same time. Uh, I've also been inspired by the fact that that's not all we've done. And I think there's been a lot of really good stuff that um, we published around health sciences education over the last several months. And I'm curious, Nathan, if, if you have a, um, a favorite or something that you're like, wow, I'm really glad we created a home for this type of publication. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think there are many, uh, I think, but you're always, uh, uh, have a, a certain, uh, um, uh, predilection for the, the, the first paper we accepted. Uh, and that was, you know, our first issue went live, uh, was February 24th, but, um, our first paper we accepted was what do programs directors value in personal statements, a qualitative, a qualitative analysis by Laurel Hinkle, Laura, Laura Hinkle and colleagues, excuse me. Um, and so I think that was, you know, not only do you just sort of take it, have an affinity for it because it was the first paper we published, but it's actually a really interesting uh, sort of question and discussion. I mean, you think about that, right? Like uh, every year, thousands of people are applying to medical residencies and fellowships, and they have to write a personal statement as part of that process. And, you know, people in our positions, I, I suspect we've all, we've read thousands of these statements as well, right? Um, but what do we as decision makers really look for in these statements? I, I think that's a fascinating question. Uh, and so this group, just to provide a little bit of a, of a meat of what, what the, the paper uh, uh, looked at, uh, they surveyed uh, the Association of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Program Directors. And they did this survey um, in 2018 and they had responses from 114 program directors or associate PDs. Uh, and then I, I found, and, and they reported their findings and they did a, a formal qualitative analysis about it. And I, I think reading this, it's, I find it very informative for applicants as they decide what to include, or sometimes just as importantly, what to exclude from their personal statement. And I know I've shared this with, uh, with uh, residents and fellows as, as they've been applying and they found it useful. Uh, I'd like to just sort of highlight a, a few specific insights. Um, you know, one, I think, and then some of these really did resonate with me as well. You know, one, making sure not to, making sure not to avoid problem spots or red flags in your application. I think, you know, confronting those things head on certainly makes sense. And they talked about that. Another thing is avoiding the hero stories, right? Um, again, as you read so many of those, you know, why I went into critical care and then the hero story, they're pretty common. And, and just as importantly, they don't reveal anything specifically informative about, about that that applicant about about them as a person or a, as an applicant. Um, another another point they made was don't try to game it. And there's not a sort of a template. There's no wrong statements, just statements that can come off as contrived or maybe insincere. So there's, there's a lot more in the paper. And actually, I do think it's essential reading for somebody before they write a personal statement. So I think that was exciting as a bread and butter health professions education paper as our, the first uh, paper we took. Yeah. So, Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, Trish. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I, um, I agree with you that it was nice to see our first paper. And I like that it was a qualitative research paper. I think it started to demonstrate the breadth of types of research that we want to see in our, in our pages. And I think you were going to ask Christy what her, her favorite was. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. Not, not at all. I mean, I, I think that, that that's, that's exactly right. So Christy, uh, getting off of COVID, tell us about a paper that, that you enjoyed reading um, and why you, why you think it was a valuable contribution uh, to the medical literature. 
Sure. I mean, in fairness, I actually really enjoyed just about all of the papers we have published. As you know, we have lots of robust discussion um, as we talk through them. Um, but I've been really happy with the breadth of the publications we have received. And I think that's part of sort of the excitement um, of our journal. Um, and two that I sort of want to highlight from this sort of diversity and breadth would be um, one is this a brief report, um, which uh, looked at gender bias in training videos. And so this came out of a, um, I would say a interdisciplinary pediatric group out of UCLA. So a pediatric critical care group, as well as a pediatric emergency medicine and transport medicine team. So I like that diversity there to begin with. Um, and um, by Mindy Vu, um, and they really basically said and took this premise, how are we looking at implicit bias or gender bias in medicine, right? So there's um, a paucity of women or um, in leadership positions as we move up and the number of women proportionally um, in the sort of instructor, assistant professor versus associate and, and full professor positions um, are not the same as they move forward. And one of the the sort of hypotheses they looked at is, well, how are we representing women um, in our educational videos? And so they reviewed ACLS videos as well as team strategies and tools to enhance performance and patient safety days or team stuff to look at sort of gender representation in these videos. Uh, they looked at 19 videos and they defined, defined healthcare providers and identified 85 actors in these 19 videos that were health professional roles. 50 were women, 35 were men. Um, and so about 20% of the actors played physicians. And when they looked at the proportions of those 18 sort of physician actors, only five were women. So 28% of the physician actors were women compared to 72% of the men um, in these videos. And then when they looked at the overall proportion of women actors um, to, to uh, men who were physicians, they found 10% of women actors played physicians, whereas 37% of the actors in the videos were, um, were men that played physicians. And so I think as educators, it's really important for us to, to take a step back and look at the content that we are sharing with medical students, with residents, um, with fellows, and with, with our colleagues. Um, whether it extends beyond ACLS and sort of emergency medicine training to leadership courses and how does that content look and how is that content balanced? Because the implicit biases within the educational content we deliver um, really have the potential to prevent a woman's ability to either see themselves in those higher roles as leaders, as physicians, um, or others to see them in those roles. And I really, really enjoyed this paper for that reason and that it's a brief report, um, which allows us to really sort of further um, the message of the importance of looking for equity for um, gender equity in medicine and leadership positions and sort of opens the door for saying this is another area to study further educational content that we deliver how balanced is it and how do we um, ensure that we're um, having gender equity as we move forward so I for me think that was a nice really um, brief report looking at the videos and really brings that to light you know, a little bit more inside baseball there. So, you know, we didn't have the brief reports at the beginning um, as we uh, started out the journal, but, you know, there are these sort of incredibly important, you know, hot topics for lack of a better term that need to be addressed, but it's hard to get really sort of meaningful assessments, especially long-term. Um, and so I really like this piece for a brief report because it's just incredibly important and the findings are, are, are instructive. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I agree with you um, that I'm really glad we published that.
So anyone who's listening, yeah, no, for those if you have an idea of something you want to submit and we don't have a category for it, you should be inspired to just submit it <laughs> and let us figure out if there's a space for it in our journal. No joke. I mean, you're hearing that this is the reality of how our journal is being created. And I think that's right. And I think that's what's exciting about it to me, right? I mean, like if this, we think this is high quality um, content that is within our scope of being a, a journal about uh, health professions education. Um, you know, there's also a traditional sort of publication, um, uh, opinion-based pieces and original research and, and other and, and reviews and so forth. But I think that that's kind of what, uh, that's what's been a lot of fun actually, trying to figure out where this is important uh, information that should be peer reviewed and disseminated, but it's got to fit within a publication process and how do we make the process work? So yes, uh, feel free to email me um, as we've done this with many authors and it's actually been a lot of fun. Yeah, and I, and I think just to even build off that statement about really our, our mission and our goal to provide educational content for healthcare providers across the spectrum, we really, I think another article within our, in our um, 2020 collection that really highlights this inclusiveness is the um, one that came out of Vanderbilt um, called Rapid Training and Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation in a Large Health System. And um, I love this paper for lots of reasons. Um, the first author is a nurse practitioner um, there's a lot of experienced senior authors on there that publish in the science of critical care medicine or sort of ECMO surgical techniques. Um, and really Whitney um, again is the first author and they designed a program to be implemented to really take a new ECMO program and up and launch it within um, Vanderbilt. And it was truly an interprofessional training program and that of the 97 clinicians that completed the program, 51% were physicians and 49% were advanced practice providers across the Department of Surgery, Medicine and Anesthesia. Um, and so I think this is yet another paper that really demonstrates that breadth and that interest to be really inclusive of our partners in medicine. I think uh, medicine in general is a team sport. Critical care medicine is probably the ultimate team sport in many ways. And I think that providing opportunities for scholarship for our partners in medicine is a really exciting part of this journal that I'm excited um, to see move forward even more in the future. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. So do I get a chance to, to talk about- <laughs> Oh yeah. That's okay. I'm going to just jump in. <laughs> and I'm going to say that um, while there's lots of, I, I love the fact that we have as much good research as we've published. And um, a couple of the perspectives really stood out for me in the first editions that we published. The first was um, Jess Mandel's Career Development Strategies for the Clinician Educator. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It is exactly what I think a lot of our readers want to learn. And I think it's about creating the community that we want to create with this journal. Uh, I liked how we talked through, you know, establish yourself as a clinician, get your leader, get your teaching chops and, and show that you're a great teacher, but also think about scholarship and potentially leadership. And I, and it probably, I like it because when I talk about it, I say the same four buckets, but <laughs> I really, I liked how he walked through how to think about your career as a clinician educator. Cause I think that's a lot of our readers. I don't think it's all of our readers but I think it's a lot of our readers which I thought that was a great perspective. And then um, the second perspective that I really, really um, liked was the one I think Christy you actually invited Quinn Capers to write a perspective um, that focused on implicit bias. And the title of it was how clinicians and educators can mitigate implicit bias in patient care and candidate selection in medical education. And what I would say is it's a great piece. I, I think everyone should take a look at it. I think our, our awareness about implicit bias and how it imp impacts 
our learning environment, the folks that we work with, our world. I think we're all becoming more and more aware of that. And I think he does a really nice job of talking through the topic. I would highlight, not to tell readers not to read the whole piece, but I would highlight the two tables that he included in um, the perspective, which I thought were really user-friendly. And actually, I like both of these perspectives because they gave people tangible skills to work on to grow. So he had one table that was all about operationalizing implicit bias reduction in um, candidate selection. So thinking about what practices could you do to not to be less biased in who you pick to be part of your medical school class, in his case, I think predominantly, or GME program, residency fellowship. So I thought that table was great. And, and like I said, read the whole article, but you could focus in on that table. And then the second table, which was operationalizing implicit bias reduction in patient interactions. So this was great because it was, going back to that theme of clinician educator, a, a way to reduce implicit bias in our education world and a way to in reduce implicit bias in our clinical world. So um, really a, a powerful piece. I think there's, there's more and more writing about implicit bias. And what I liked is that he was able to focus it kind of in the world in which many of us live and work. And I think that that was helpful. So um, two, two voices of experts in this case, um, both giving their perspectives, but giving their perspectives with some really tangible, usable take-home points for folks. Um, those two perspectives stood out to me as particularly um, impactful, but also kind of who we want to be as a journal. So I, I really liked both of them for that reason. And, and I generally enjoy the perspectives. Maybe it's my attention span, but um, I like reading the perspectives overall. I think that's right, but I think I think you highlight the key thing: their perspectives with sort of an expert opinion, but clear, tangible things that one could do. Uh, I think that that's what really uh, made those just excellent pieces. Um, uh, that again, for for Jess's piece, you know, as you think about your career with clinician educator, and then practical implementation of an implicit bias um, training program from from Dr. Capers' piece. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. So the question is, where do we go from here? Because it's almost the next year. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I think we can't think about 2021 without reflecting for a moment on, on 2020. And I think the first thing I'd like to do, uh, and I can use a public for, forum to do so, is thank both of you for your work on ATS Scholar. And we, we talked a little bit about this um, uh, earlier, but it's not easy getting a, a new journal off the ground, and I'm even going to take COVID off of that discussion, right? You know, the, the mundane things like developing the submission categories, writing the instruction for authors, um, the other important things that, that are the groundwork that when you start a journal, building a diverse team of senior editors and editorial board members um, who are diverse, who have a breadth of expertise. Uh, and then, um, you know, I share uh, all these papers that we get submitted, you know, read every one of them and ensure that we publish high quality content. So, you know, the two of you, along with our amazing ATS Journal staff, have joined me for our weekly meetings all, all year, getting the journal started, even while the two of you have been supporting your hospitals and COVID care and support. And I must tell you personally that this was a, and professionally, this was a highlight of 2020 for me. And kept me sane in an insane year. So I want to thank you both. The feeling is mutual. 100% agreed.
So, so with that, I mean, I would think about as we think about 2021, and hopefully we're in a vaccinated world, we're in a world where COVID is much more manageable. And so um, I think we've spent a lot of time in this podcast and, and in our weekly meetings talking about the community, the health professions education community. And I think we have to continue to work hard to engage that community. So, um, you know, we have a great media team that was able to get this scholarly podcast off the ground and the ATS Scholar Twitter program as well during our launch year. And I look forward to the continued growth um, of those programs. But I, I think that, you know, one lesson from COVID, it certainly reminded me of the importance of our shared community. Um, you know, I miss seeing the two of you when we'll meet at a conference or a leadership summit you know, many of our other friends at conferences sharing experiences over a coffee or an adult beverage, right? You know, I think you really miss those and I can't wait till we have those experiences again. But I, I think we can do some of this virtually and we've learned that in a big way this year. So, you know, as we think about that community, you know, I wanna, I look forward to sharing manuscripts and amplifying authors' works over social media that, of, of papers that get published um, in Scholar with infographics and informative tweets and hosting podcasts to discuss the important education issues of our time. But I also think it's very important for us to consider how to best utilize these media, which are relatively new, right? to speak with our large and diverse community of clinician educators. So we're gonna work on that in 2021 and we're gonna see what's most effective. Um, you know, we haven't been able to schedule the exact time yet, but we plan to have a Twitter chat with Quinn Capers to talk about the paper that Trish mentioned, his implicit bias paper. Um, so I'm excited to see how that turns out. And again, how we can most effectively uh, leverage all these media platforms to to engage with this this uh, this community that we all share and are a part of. So um, with that, I'd ask you, Trish, uh, for your sort of thoughts about looking forward to in 2021 um, with ATS Scholar, and feel free to talk about life in general. <laughs> well, Nathan knows that I now am freaking out that this podcast is getting too long. So I'm <laughs> going to be focused in my response right now. So number one, I'm looking forward to being vaccinated in all seriousness and seeing my family and friends again because I miss seeing them. So I'm looking forward to that in 2021. And that includes a lot of people in the pulmonary critical care community like you were just alluding to. So that resonates with me as well. Um, I have a very specific desire for ATS Scholar in 2021. I write this down. I have wanted us to have a section called How I Teach, where we could get some <laughs> of our master teachers to walk us through how they teach about complex or simple concepts that we all teach about in pulmonary critical care. And come hell or high water in 2021, we are going to publish at least one How I Teach, because I think if we can realize that goal, it will be a valuable tool for people who are thoughtful about how they address different things that we teach about frequently, but would love to hear what's going on in somebody else's brain and how they explain it. And I know that because I love listening to other people teach about things that I teach about a lot. So I'm making a commitment today on this podcast that in 2021, we will have at least one, and I'm hoping for more, how I teach published. Christy, how about you? I love that, Trish. <laughs> I'm writing it down. <laughs> Thank you. 
Nitin was taking notes the whole time. So we have now made that guarantee. Um, For me, I will also be cognizant of the time and I will be brief. Um, I'm excited to continue um, the sort of the growth of our interprofessional educators and our healthcare um, providers education. And I do believe that we have a plan for a call for papers for people to submit for interprofessional educational content sometime this spring. So please keep an eye out for that. I think it's a tremendous opportunity to work with our colleagues on a scholarly level um, that will only further, I think, our community um, as we move forward. I think it's gonna be awesome. I, I think it's a topic that I know is near and dear to you, Christy, but it's a topic that's near and dear to lots of our community. So I think the IP focus will be great. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what you said earlier, Christy, critical care is a team sport and obviously critical care is a big part of what, what we publish. So I think it's very exciting. And obviously there are interprofessional aspects of, of pulmonary sleep and, and there's so many things. So I think we're really excited to, to for that, that call for papers. Well, first of all, I want to thank uh, both of you for taking uh, time uh, for this podcast. And I want to thank our listeners, uh, to everyone listening to today's podcast, as well as those of you who listened to earlier episodes of Scholarly, as we got this, uh, we got this podcast off the ground in 2020. So if you want to be the first to hear when new Scholarly episodes are posted, please subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can search American Thoracic Society and find Scholarly. On behalf of Trish, Christy, and the entire ATS Scholar team, we wish you a happy and healthy 2021. Thank you for joining us.